Center for Health Security was founded as a non-governmental organization focused on studying how vulnerable the United States population might be to biological weapons and what might be done to lessen that vulnerability. Part of the mission has involved figuring out how to make civilians and institutions around the world more resilient in the face of pandemics in general. And as a result, in partnership with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Alongside other contributors like the World Economic Forum and at times the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all organizations that partially focus on pandemics as well, they set up a series of exercises to demonstrate what different sorts of pandemics might look like, how they might emerge and progress, and what might be done to ameliorate their worst impacts, as well as what might happen if we make the wrong choices. These exercises are typically called tabletop exercises. Not because they play out like a tabletop board game, but because they involve experts sitting at a table, strategizing and working together, making decisions and proposing policies in an effort to prevent the fictional but possible pandemics posited by the Center for Health Security experts. Not entirely unlike a board game, but actually quite a bit more like a game of very serious Dungeons & Dragons. These exercises often have military operation-style names, Dark Winter focused on a covert smallpox attack in the United States, while Atlantic Storm had participants take on the roles of transatlantic leaders responding to a bioterror attack. Clade X used real-world examples to teach attendees about how epidemics might be stopped before they even get started. And then there was Event 201, the most recent of these exercises, which was predicated on a novel coronavirus emerging from pig farms in Brazil which then exploded into a worldwide pandemic they called CAPS, for Coronavirus-Associated Pulmonary Syndrome. This particular exercise only lasted about three and a half hours, compared to the often day-long events the organization sometimes holds. But it's received by far the most attention of any of these exercises, in part due to the seeming similarities between the fictional, hypothetical, SARS-like coronavirus in the simulation and the real-world coronavirus we're dealing with in real life right now, COVID-19. Part of that attention is also the consequence of the media assets that were created for the event, intended to make the ideas presented more sticky and memorable, to the business and political world leading participants and audience members. In retrospect, though, to some, through the lens of the situation as I record this, this particular exercise can seem almost too perfect, at least for those who are willing to look at the similarities and discount all the differences between the fictional coronavirus and the real one. As a result, there have been abundant conspiracy theories popping up all over the internet, speculating that government organizations, world leaders, and billionaire-class business people knew about this impending disease back in October of 2019 when they played this tabletop simulation game, figuring out how world leaders should respond, what policies should be passed, and how, in essence, to staunch the flow of this disease so that it doesn't infect everyone, devastate the global economy, and, as was the end result in the simulation, kill 65 million people before it infects the majority of the population, ensuring that almost everyone left alive has immunity, but at a staggering cost. 
It's understandable that this might seem a bit too coincidental if you're unaware that such simulations take place all the time, are paid for by a variety of entities, and that the reason these groups pay so much money to make these things happen to begin with is because it's very likely that the scenarios presented could happen at some point, potentially in the near future. That's their entire purpose. It would not make sense to hold simulations for events that are incredibly unlikely to ever happen, at least not in comparison to ones that are quite likely to happen. That the usual suspects for many of the most ardent conspiracy floggers, like the CDC, the Gates Foundation, and a slew of pharmaceutical companies, also took part in this simulation, did not help matters. But it also isn't an indication of anything other than these being groups that fund a lot of these sorts of events. And they are groups that participate in a lot of these sorts of simulations because it's their resources, their supply chain, and their production mechanisms that will be most strained and most vital if and when such viruses emerge. For what it's worth, you can visit the Event 201 website. I'll link to it in the show notes, and see for yourself that these events are quite serious in their intentions, but often a little bit silly in their production value, in part because it is such a sad, sobering thing to think about, and in part because, as I mentioned before, that's the best way to get these people who are thinking about and worrying about a million other things to pay attention and remember the lessons learned at these events so that if and when something bad happens, they're more likely to recall the best practices that they all came up with, based on the best available data and the most relevant experts. Importantly, though, the folks involved in the simulation did not make any real-world predictions, nor did they predict the precise specifications of the COVID-19 coronavirus. Saying something is a coronavirus is only a tiny bit more specific than saying that it's a virus. The word corona refers to the halo-like structure that holds it together, which makes these types of viruses distinct from most other types of viruses. But there are several types of coronavirus, and saying that all coronaviruses are sufficiently similar is kind of like saying the common cold is like rabies. It's technically true, but not true in the sense that enthusiastic fraudsters or incorrect but confident YouTubers might want you to believe. What I'd like to do today is provide a sort of follow-up overview of what's been going on with the COVID-19 disease caused by the SARS-CoV-2, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 virus, in the period since I last covered it, mostly from the perspective of all the misinformation that was being spread about it, back in late January of 2020. And a quick spoiler, in case you haven't been paying attention, a whole lot has happened, and we're almost certainly in for quite a bit more of these sorts of weeks before things eventually settle down. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, The Official Coronavirus Numbers Are Wrong, and Everyone Knows It. I wanted to use this particular piece as a starting point, rather than one of the great many others that I could probably have used and still gotten to where I'd like to end up instead, because it focuses on a source of a lot of other issues that we're dealing with at the moment. Uncertainty. Yes, a new virus that may have a higher than average death rate is scary, and yes, the possibility that the virus can hide and cause no symptoms for a while, but still be contagious during that time, is also quite terrifying to think about. 
But what amplifies these and many other scary aspects of this coronavirus, and the seemingly countless other concerns that are being dragged along in its wake, is that we just don't know very much about it yet. It's like facing a monster in the dark versus facing it in the illuminating brightness of full noon. It's still a monster, but the sheer terror and panic levels will almost always be lower when you can assess the thing, look for weak points, and start planning a strategy to slay it. At the moment, we are in the dark with something that, based on what we can feel, might be a snake, but it also might be an elephant. We simply don't know enough to know the difference or to know precisely what we don't know yet. What this Atlantic piece says, in essence, is that not only do we not know what we need to know, most people also know that we don't know. And that knowledge of our lack of knowledge is terrifying, especially as we see report after report outlining the number of new cases being detected. When in reality, even those seemingly concrete numbers are really just what we've managed to find within the grand muddle of biological and societal complexity, governmental disorganization and ineptitude, political maneuvering, and international grandstanding. The reality is that this disease is almost certainly pretty much everywhere. It's been lurking in our communities for longer than we've been talking about it. And thus, it's an immensely common, incredibly widespread unknown. Dangerous in part because of that duality. It's hard to know how to behave when things seem both somewhat tangible and immensely nebulous simultaneously. The specifics of what we know about this disease, and the specifics of its spread, will have changed, perhaps substantially, by the time this episode goes live. I'm recording this a few days before publishing it, so the day-to-day storyline will have changed by the time this episode lands in your feed. That is the nature of this sort of story. What I would like to do now, though and this is something that's less likely to change significantly in the next few weeks or even months, is to take a look at the larger-scale ripples that are emanating outward from this quick-spreading, news-headline-dominating worldwide event, and interrogate a bit what might happen next. A little bit of pseudo-prediction, perhaps, but mostly focusing on what's being posited by those who are in the know right now. And then thinking about what questions we should be asking ourselves, what portions of the surge of news we're seeing every day we should be paying particularly close attention to, to understand what's really happening, beneath and beyond the more frantic, breathless, but ultimately less broadly useful reporting. At the moment I'm recording this, many of the COVID-19 stories of the day revolve around the vast and spreading economic implications of this pandemic. And it was finally designated a global pandemic by the World Health Organization in early March 2020. And though the terminology used is less important than the actions taken in response to it, formally adhering that term to this coronavirus was a bit of a milestone in terms of giving world leaders who were hemming and hawing the chance to change their tune without seeming to be flip-floppers or alarmists to their supporters which made it arguably quite a meaningful moment. Most conferences worldwide have been canceled at this point, ranging from comparably somewhat niche events like the NVIDIA GTC, F5 Agility, Domopalooza, Octane Conference, and the Facebook Global Marketing Summit, all the way to the comparably well-known Google I.O., Facebook F8, IBM Think, and Adobe Summit events. An upcoming TED conference in Vancouver has been delayed, as has the annual South by Southwest Tech Music and Film Conference collection, which take place in Austin, Texas each year, and which brought in about $356 million to the city of Austin in 2019, money that a large number of local businesses and service providers were expecting 
to line their coffers, but which for the moment it's looking like they will have to go without. In the last few days, national and global sports organizations have canceled, postponed, or virtualized their events. In that latter case, either having players perform in empty stadiums, broadcasting the games online and on TV, and in those other cases, pushing them further back, or just refunding the tickets of people who were planning to show up. This includes basketball, baseball, hockey, and pretty much every other major sporting event worldwide. At the moment, the Japanese government says the Olympics, which are scheduled to take place in Japan in late July through early August, are still on, though we'll see if that changes. There are rumors that they may try to push it back to the end of the year, allowing them to still meet the contractual terms that they have with the larger Olympics organization, while also avoiding exposing attendees and athletes to the worst of a disease-related threat of this kind. California has banned big events in general, and other states and cities around the world have done the same, using various standards for what constitutes a big event, but in general just trying to prevent people from getting together and creating more vectors for this disease. Disney theme parks have closed around the world, and Apple is closing all of their Apple stores worldwide for two weeks, though notably, the stores in the portions of China that have already gone through the worst of the virus spread, and which have seemingly come back under control, something approximating normal life restored, those will remain open. Nike recently announced that it will do the same, though no word yet on what they will be doing in China. Big parades seem to be a non-starter at the moment, with some of the biggest parades here in the United States, like the St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City, recently having been canceled. Though as of the day I'm recording this, some relatively smaller events, like the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Des Moines, Iowa, are still set to occur as planned, despite pleas from local politicians and, in some cases, local medical organizations and staff. Major tourism destinations worldwide are shutting down for weeks or months, or in some cases, indeterminate amounts of time. Mount Everest and its sister peaks, for instance, are currently closed for climbers, and most major cruise lines have shut down their services, at least for a little while, in some cases because they've been told to do so, and in some cases, presumably, out of an abundance of care, to save on expenses at a moment in which few people are keen to hop on cruise ships, and to avoid negative public sentiment and horrible PR opportunities that could occur under such circumstances. One of the more shocking happenings this week, arguably, has been the closing of borders between friendly countries, including the United States banning travel from all European Schengen Zone countries. And the Schengen Zone is a collection of countries that allow free travel without passport check restrictions to citizens of other Schengen Zone countries. And the UK and Ireland were added to this ban a few days later. So at the moment, travelers from Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Liechtenstein, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland, along with the United Kingdom, which itself contains England, Scotland, Wales, and North Ireland, alongside the separate country of Ireland, are all banned from coming into the United States unless they are U.S. citizens or family of U.S. citizens, in which case they will be allowed in. The U.S. is not alone in imposing what some have called draconian travel measures. Many countries, including nearby South American countries like Argentina, are heavily screening or banning travel from U.S. airports for periods ranging from weeks to months. 
and there are near-constantly updated lists of such travel bans and advisories on most major news sites, which tells you something about how much news there is in that particular facet of this story. Most of these announcements, as they come in, paint a pretty clear picture. Governments around the world are trying to staunch the flow of people who are infected or who are potential carriers, but diplomacy requires that they hold off in some cases, only implementing such measures at the last second, or even after the last second, once an emergency has already started, and in some cases the local infrastructure or civil liberties require that they implement softer security measures instead as is the case, seemingly, in New Zealand, where all incoming travelers, including their own citizens, are being told to self-isolate for two weeks after their arrival, a request that is prudent, but nearly impossible to actually enforce in any meaningful way, and it stands in stark contrast to measures being taken elsewhere that are blocking people who might be carriers of the disease almost completely. Some countries were initially using this moment as an excuse to amplify saber-rattling behavior, taunting or insulting their rivals by insinuating that their people are less than or unclean in comparison to our people. But such gestures have mostly fallen by the wayside due to the necessities of the moment, with most of the primarily China-focused travel bans that we initially had in place giving way to broader scope efforts in recent weeks. Throughout all of the more overt issues arising in the wake of this coronavirus's spread, we're also seeing, or seeming to worry about, potential supply chain disruption, the potential for pockets of worse-than-we-currently-realize disease spread and death, and increasing awareness that COVID-19 might become part of the background disease environment, subsiding for a bit over the summer, maybe, but then cropping back up in the fall, when temperatures return to a more favorable average, and when a great many of the delayed public events and conferences are then held within a very short period of time. That latter concern also applying to a potential resurgence of cases in China now that they're beginning to remove some of their more hardcore measures and allow people to go about their somewhat normal lives again. All of that in mind, let's talk for a moment about what might happen next and what it might be prudent to be psychologically and potentially practically preparing for in the coming months. There are not unwarranted concerns in some facets of the economic world that supply shocks may be a key component of our future, ranging from shortages of certain components, seemingly minor electrical bits and bobs that nonetheless truncate our ability to produce new cars and phones, for instance, which could, in turn, diminish economically vital industries, lead to mass firings and stock market collapses, and overall just cause a whole lot of very uncomfortable issues throughout our daily lives. Part of the concern here is that what are called just-in-time supply chains have become so common that a huge swath of the global economy is predicated on making and storing just enough of everything so that we have perhaps a few days' worth of all of those goods stored away in a warehouse somewhere, and then those products and components are delivered by our powerful supply chains, our networks of planes and trucks and trains and boats and delivery vehicles, before being replenished to their typical levels, essentially as soon as they are diminished. They are replenished just in time, and the stock is delivered to where they need to go just in time to keep store shelves filled. This is a model that works great if all of those chains, those distribution networks, continue to work flawlessly. It usually means less chance of overproduction and waste, and it often means that companies spend less on stockpiling, which is typically a good thing. But this system, potentially, falls apart if any fundamental portion of that system, that larger, globe-spanning collection of infrastructure, 
is weakened or removed. So if you have a lot of delivery truck drivers out sick, if you have travel bans keeping planes on the ground or limiting aviation infrastructure, if you have production lines of components also shutting down, closing to keep people from getting sick for who knows how long, and those components are required to make other products which then can't be made, those manufacturing hubs then shut down, and then those products don't go out to stores, and those stores are then shut down. It becomes pretty clear pretty quickly how easily a collection of relatively small issues could upscale into major regionally or industry-wide catastrophic issues throughout some portions of our global economy. This might mean, then, that new smartphones are slow to be released, but it also might mean that medications, day-to-day -day items like laundry detergent and soap, and even more fundamental raw materials like lumber and rubber could be in short supply in some places, and perhaps for quite a while. Alongside some workplaces, schools around the world are being shut down, leaving adults and kids at home together all day. Something that many people probably wish for on a regular basis, I think, but the charm probably wears off a lot quicker than we might assume when this cloistering of everyone together in a single home is an enforced requirement rather than an unexpected luxury. Remote work, then, but also remote educational technologies and tools are being experimented with on a broad scale very quickly and without warning, with very mixed results. Some companies are finding that their infrastructure is not up to the task. The popular stock trading app, Robinhood, for instance, has crashed on some of the most active trading days in modern history over the past few weeks, leading to lawsuits and reputational problems that will probably be tricky to fully move beyond to get past. And telecommunications companies in places like Italy, where the spread of the coronavirus and related deaths have been some of the highest worldwide, are being pushed to their limits. Everyone's at home trying to stream music and videos and to play games. There are reports that teenagers playing Fortnite in particular has been a major issue for these networks. And that's meant weak points that were previously minor issues are becoming major issues at a moment where stress and anxiety are already high. And some population centers are becoming borderline pressure cookers as a consequence of all of this stress and the anxiety of having imperfectly functioning infrastructure. It's not a great recipe for calm, reasonable collective action. And it's absolutely understandable when a bunch of people worried about their own and their family's health are relegated to small spaces and forced to cope with flawed systems that are being pushed to their limits and at times beyond those limits. Particularly worrying, in my mind, is what this period of learning, suffering, and regulating will mean for people who cannot work from home, whose jobs required that they work with people, they drive cars, they serve coffee, they bag groceries, that sort of thing. Part of the issue is that many such people are being required to stay out on the front lines despite frequent warnings, justified warnings, that they should absolutely not do that. And part of the issue here is that if their jobs were to cease, if their places of business were to close even for a while, that would mean, probably, that they won't get paid. And in countries like the United States in particular, where a significant portion of the population is living paycheck to paycheck, unable to come up with $400 for an emergency medical service if required. That's a terrifying thought. On the personal level, and structurally, for society, it is scarily easy to imagine thousands of small businesses going out of business during this time, and all of those people, owners and workers, suddenly not having the resources required 
just to subsist, just to pay rent and get groceries, not to mention pay for any medical services that they might require, in general but also potentially related to COVID-19. A lot of structural vulnerabilities are being laid bare right now. Among them, weaknesses in our approach to doing business, and weaknesses in what we consider to be social safety nets, and what we consider to be each individual's responsibility, reasonably attainable or not. That recognition may turn out to be one of the silver linings of this almost entirely negative situation, ultimately. Pandemics have a way of, of making it undeniably evident that it's not enough to take care of oneself, and that for each of us individually to have our health, we kind of require that our societies as a whole are also healthy. There are legitimate discussions and arguments to have about what that means and how to implement such ideals, that everyone should be healthy whatever their situation because we're all better off when that is the case, but I think it's likely that more people will come to the table on that concept in the first place, post-COVID-19, whenever that happens to be, chronologically. I think more people will have realized that there is a problem, and then we can focus on discussing how to handle that problem, rather than discussing whether it is a problem to begin with. It's also worth noting that despite the swaths of carnage caused by the SARS outbreak back in the early 2000s, one of the consequences of that outbreak in China was the emergence of their current vast and valuable e-commerce and app-based infrastructure. The tech conglomerates Alibaba and JD.com, both titans in the Chinese tech world, the equivalent of maybe Amazon blended with Google blended with Facebook, if we're roughly approximating their impact and scale, they gained an early boost, a wave of early adopters for their online services because of people staying home, avoiding places and behaviors that might expose them to a disease that killed hundreds of people in a relatively short period of time. The government was incentivized to finally roll out high-speed internet for the bulk of their population because so much of that population was forced to stay home with nothing else to do, a recipe for trouble, potentially, for some types of government. The need for things that would normally be procured from in-person shops amplified the importance of online retail, and the need to communicate and share information bulked up the number of users for then-nascent social networks. The shape of what came next was determined during that outbreak, and a lot of the investment that happened in subsequent years leading to some of the most interesting and cool things that major Chinese cities enjoy today was the consequence of wanting to build more resiliency into their systems. There are absolutely pros and cons to a great deal of their infrastructure, very much including these sprawling and interconnected surveillance systems that the Chinese government utilizes to maintain control and order, even at the expense of human rights. That doesn't imply that such investments are not valuable, though, and it's likely that they would look different when implemented within different sorts of societies, with different structural goals and dominant ideologies. It's already been posited here in the United States, for instance, that this might be the moment that the government finally gets the message that rural high-speed internet is a necessity, a modern utility, not a luxury. They've been dragging their heels on this for decades, and this may be the catalyst for finally making the investments required to bring everyone up to speed, connecting folks who currently lack up-to-date information, but also the digital infrastructure required to reliably order things online play online games, and watch streaming video without constant outages and low-quality issues, not to mention the myriad benefits of just being able to stay in touch with each other and stay on top of what's happening throughout the world. The stock market is a jumble of conflicting messages right now, and it's likely that some people will use this low moment to get in on some assets that were previously financially out of reach.
though it's also possible that this pandemic will prove to have been the pin that pricked a growing balloon, taking things back to a more reasonable, supportable scale. And thus, the lower prices that we're seeing throughout many industries will actually be the new normal for quite some time, rather than the dip that many investors are hoping that it is right now. In either case, we are seeing some companies' shares boom, especially those whose goods and services are relevant for our disease-ridden moment. Zoom, which makes online video conferencing software, for instance, and companies that may eventually develop a first-mover vaccine for COVID-19 are genuinely popping right now. Even as airline companies, cruise companies, and restaurant and mall real estate companies, and other entities that typically flourish, but which provide currently non-desirable goods and services, are collapsing. Some economic supports have already been posited or provided by governments around the world, and though we've yet to see any complete successes in that regard, it's very possible that even the good stuff, the regulations and policies that will ultimately pull markets out of the rubbish bin, will be kept down for a good while, due to the great many ties that bind all of these markets together. In other words, just as each of us is individually more likely to be healthy when those around us are also healthy, our economies are more likely to flourish when other economies, all of which are tied together, are also flourishing. So in the short term, we will see a lot of numbers that are not necessarily representative of what's happening right now at the fundamental level of our independent market. And that's something that we'll have to get used to, perhaps till the end of the year when it's most likely that we'll have better treatment options for COVID-19, and when we'll be within maybe half a year, most likely, of having a deployable vaccine. Till then, our indicators will be far less reliable, though, because of the interconnections between relatively healthy countries and what they're making and their economic situation, and the relatively sick countries and what they are not making and what they are not spending. It's important to remember, in the meantime, that panic is not useful, but preparation is. Part of the preparations we can all be making is to keep our wits about us, remembering that the numbers that we are seeing are real people, and that every single death, and in some cases debilitating infections too, that represents someone's worst day ever, worst day of their entire lives. Imagine someone that you love dearly dying, and that is what is happening to someone or a great many someones with every single death from this pandemic. And it's important to keep things in perspective in that way so that we don't distance ourselves from this too much, even as we try to distance ourselves enough that we can continue to function. It's important, too, that we keep things in perspective. Some of the greatest panics that have emerged from this situation thus far have been utterly ridiculous when put into context. And recognizing that a particular brand of frozen pizza not being available at your local grocery store, as usual, does not represent the end of the world, especially considering that there are a dozen other brands still there. Keeping the bigger context in mind can help us weather this thing, even as our norms shift, as our status quo becomes less optimal than usual, and as the news that we can't seem to avoid fills us with dread and worrying anticipation. It's prudent, too, to be aware, to stay in the know, to make sure that we have the information that we need to be safe, but to also recognize that much of the information that we're being fed right now is not necessarily useful for our day-to-day -day functionality. Now, I'm the last person to tell anyone to be less informed, but I will say that much of the reporting happening at the moment is not necessary to sustain oneself 
to live well and to stay healthy. It may be prudent to touch base with the news every few days rather than every few minutes, to get an update and to have a broad overview of what's going on and what to expect, and definitely to implement any future health measures that we're told about from reliable medical organizations. But the slew of coronavirus-themed newsletters and podcasts and shows are not necessarily helpful in that same way. It keeps us vibrating with worry and jazzed up with fight-or-flight chemicals, and that's not typically a recipe for rational behavior. It's an example of paying attention to the news but not necessarily becoming any more informed. Consider, instead, using the shift in status quo that we're experiencing to question some of your assumptions, to treat yourself and others as well as you can manage, to adjust your habits and routines so that you stay healthy mentally and physically and to try out some tweaks to your normal way of doing things. Consider, in other words, thinking about and doing things that have nothing to do with the pandemic, so that rather than being caught up in breathless speculation and concern, being nudged into cosplaying survivalist fan fiction and anticipating the end of the world, to make the best of a bad and at times horrible situation, to live your best life considering the circumstances, and to control what you're able to control to the best of your ability, very much including your capacity to step away from the content machine and the many economic and brand-related incentives that are leading to the production, and arguably overproduction in many cases, of no doubt well-intentioned but still sometimes unproductive horse race-style reporting on the matter. Now, for what it's worth, this podcast is not going to become a coronavirus podcast, It will be something that touches on a lot of the news in the near future, perhaps even leading off into the somewhat distant future. But I do fully intend to focus on as much of the other vitally important stuff that is still happening in the world as possible on this show. And this is a suggestion that even as you stay educated about as many things as possible, including COVID-19, that you consider doing the same with your own inputs in all possible mediums. book that I'd like to recommend today is called Uncanny Valley by Anna Weiner. This book follows the trajectory of a young woman who worked in Silicon Valley at what we might describe as the heyday of the area, the post.com bubble heyday anyway, leading up until just very recently, 2018 I think is when she quit her job. So it's a memoir of a portion of this woman's life that in talking about her experiences gives us a very rare, very poignant insight into some of the immense benefits of this society, this subgroup that exists within this incredibly wealthy and influential part of the United States. But it also shows us some of the incredible vulnerabilities and flaws, very much including the immense misogyny and kind of mono-focused thinking that can sometimes take hold when so many people who see the world in the same way happen to aggregate in one place and do very, very well economically. The book is very well written. I think it's fairly even-handed and fair, despite the criticisms that it makes. So if anything about that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Uncanny Valley by Anna Weiner. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find some of my other projects, some of my writing projects, at exilelifestyle.com, brainlenses.com, and askcolin.com. 
Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on pretty much all of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week.